And I'm 75, and I've only preached about 10. So, this means that you cannot expect a sermon with the content like Spurgeon, but it also means you don't have to stay here for two or three hours till the sermon is finished. <laughs> so, uh, let us start with a prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Today I would like to talk about prayer, and you have probably seen it already. It was all about prayer. We sang the Lord's Prayer. Sounds beautiful here, really does. And I'd like to talk about this tonight a little bit. And uh, just to put it in the beginning, we have, uh, you know, so I escape all accusations of plagiarism or anything. There is a man by the name of William Barclay. I don't know if you know him. He is an exegete and a Bible teacher, was, doesn't live anymore. And he wrote an excellent book on exactly the Lord's Prayer. And if you really want to get deeper into it and have some time, and it's basically an easy read, but it, it will give you a lot. And uh, so quite a few of my thoughts come, come from him. And... Uh, you know, when we talk about prayer, we talk about Christian disciplines. And Christian disciplines are like prayer, or fasting, or studying, worshipping, confession. And I think prayer, our communion with God, that we have the possibility to talk to God, <coughs> is the most important of all these Christian disciplines. Prayer goes through the whole Bible, of course. You can start in the beginning, and everybody prayed. Moses prayed, Job prayed, Abraham prayed. They all did. In the New Testament, of course, too. Jesus prayed, Paul prayed. Paul said, pray at all times. Pray without ceasing. We should have an attitude of mind that keeps us very close to God, that we can talk to him, not just on Sunday morning, but, you know, whenever, during the day. And uh, Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without pleasing. He said, I have so much to do today that I spent the first three hours in prayer. So the question is, how much time do we usually spend in prayer? How much time do we spend talking to God? Especially when we are busy, you know, then we don't take the first three hours, then we take five minutes so we can go rush off and do our, do our job. And, uh, yeah, that is what Luther said, and I think we would be well advised to take it to heart. You know, my, yeah, the title of my sermon basically is on prayer, but it might also be, have been, so what? So what? I mean, that's the question that you should ask and we should ask ourselves as we go together through some of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer. So what? What does it mean to me? Uh, we talked about Christian disciplines, you know. There are intellectual disciplines. You study chemistry, you study theology, you study whatever, English literature or medicine. These are the intellectual disciplines. And you all know the Olympic disciplines, we have the marathon, we have the 80 meter, 100 meter dash, we have all these things. And the common thing of all these disciplines is that they take effort. It doesn't come from nothing. 
it takes effort, it takes repetition, it takes time, it takes what in the Bible often is called uh, perseverance. Keeping at it in order to develop ourselves, in order to develop our personality, our character. So, if prayer is a discipline, that means we have to keep at it. And, you know, there are many kinds of prayers, and we can grow and get better at it too. Prayers in general should be simple, they should be sincere, trusting and expressing our feelings. Uh, there is a good acronym really in, in English, which I put it up here, it's called ACTS, A-C-T-S. It means adoration, <laughs> confession, thanksgiving and supplication. These are the four things that should be, make the element when we pray. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. We could differentiate between what, what you call free prayer and formal prayer. Free prayer is a prayer that just flows from our heart, which we formulate freely, such as thanking for a nice day, thanking for getting up in the morning, praising God for his creation, and submitting our needs and the needs of our friends just as it comes. And then there are formal prayers. Formal prayers are prayers which have been formulated for us, prayers that have been fixed in a predetermined form. Sometimes we use these prayers with children, you know. I remember sitting there with our grandkids before meal, <coughs> and you say, uh, for health and strength and daily bread, we praise thy name, O Lord. Amen. Or you say before going to bed, you know, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. You know, I mean, these are kind how it goes then very often. And the kids at the table, they really don't think about Thanksgiving very much. Uh, they think about, uh, you know, the spaghetti or the pizza in, in front of them. And, uh, of course, good formal prayers, just like the Lord's Prayer, are a very good thing. But the inherent danger, I think, in these prayers is uh, that we know these prayers by heart, we know them inside and out, and we can recite them very often without really thinking about the content. I don't know how it is with you, but it happens to me, you know, in church, you pray the, our, uh, the Lord's Prayer, and it's easy, really, to pray correctly and already think about your Sunday brunch, you know. That is no problem. And that is the danger of these, these, uh, these prayers. And the Lord's Prayer basically is the standard, you could say, the standard Christian prayer. It's a formal, set prayer, routinely prayed. As I said, for example, at IPC, every Sunday morning, we close our service visit. There are many good sides to routine, of course, too. A routine creates a discipline, it creates a habit, and there are good habits, not only bad habits. A good habit is to pray frequently, for example, and that's the, the positive side of a, of a routine, to, make some, to do something regularly, to make a habit of it. The dangers which we must be aware is what I said, routines can lead to, to formalism. It's, we go through the forms without really contemplating the content. 
without thinking about the meaning. We know the prayer by heart and recite it without thinking what we say. For this reason, I would like to look at some petitions of the Lord's Prayer in more detail. And it's clear this is a fast and superficial overview. I mean, in 20, 25 minutes to go through the Lord's Prayer, uh, it's, it's not easy, but I hope that you will get some things and maybe this or that will make you think a little bit and when you pray it again, maybe it has more meaning than uh, it had so far. So as I said in the beginning, the question should be, so what? What does it mean for me? Let's start with the first line. First line, first petition is our Father. By the way, in German, the, the whole prayer is called Unser Vater, das Unser Vater, our Father. We don't talk about the Lord's Prayer, we talk about the Unser Vater, our Father. And the first point is that our is plural. It implies the plural. Of course, we can and should pray this prayer for ourselves too, but we don't just pray it for ourselves. God is not only my Father, He is our Father. His love is universal. And it says, you know all that, John 3.16, God so loved the world. It doesn't just say God so loved me. It says God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. So it, it is plural. Fatherhood implies nearness. If God is our Father, it means He is near. Uh, Jesus, you know, in his time, he used the word Abba, and Abba basically is translated into Daddy. So he was very close to his father, and so can we be. We can approach God with a simple, childlike trust, you know. Be as children, it says, you know. And uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, comes to mind now. That is not the highly sophisticated, you know. We don't have to go to university to learn how to pray. We can approach God in the way that we are. Simple, childlike trust, confidence. Going to a father who knows us and going to a father who loves us and cares for us. God is near and he knows every one of us by our name. He knows who we are, where we come from, where we are going. Fatherhood implies mercy. Our Father, mercy. We saw that in Psalm uh, 103, you know. And the, the best picture probably of mercy in the Bible that you can find is the, the prodigal son. You all know that. The, the, the guy who left home, you know, and he wanted his inheritance from his father and he left and he uh, squandered it all with women and with feasts and stuff. Finally had to eat the pig's food and saw how good it was at home. And he went home, <coughs> and uh, he was destitute. And he said, he, he said, uh, Father, I'm not really worthy to be your son anymore. You know, hire me as your servant. But the father, his father didn't even wait at the door. His father ran towards him, you know. I mean, he loved him, he ran towards him. <coughs> and that is, I think, a, a picture for the mercy for the love that God shows for us. He seeks us, he knocks, he calls, he comes. So fatherhood implies mercy. Then fatherhood also implies obedience. 
fatherhood of God requires the obedience of man. The love of the father is no license to sin. But, yeah, just as in our families, I mean, so we all know it. We all know it as parents or we know it as kids. There is an order in the family and the, the parents, the father, expects obedience from, from the kids. And that's what God does as well. Fatherhood implies obedience. Fatherhood also implies brotherhood. When we say our father, it defines our relationship with God, but it also defines our relationship with each other, with brothers and sisters. We are the family of God. If we really love God as our father, we have to love each other as our brothers and sisters. That is the logic of it. We must look out for each other. We must look out for the family, the family of God, with God our father. God is not our body. And God is no tyrant. God is our loving father, as Jesus called him, Abba. Then it says, our father who art in heaven. Heaven is a place I think about we know very little, basically. For glimpses of it, we can look at the book of Revelation. And in it, we read, among other things, that there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things have passed away. That's the new heaven. That is heaven. And as believers, the beautiful thing is that we have the assurance that we will be there. And uh, you remember Jesus said to his uh, disciples, and I quote here, it's in the book of John, chapter 14. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. That's the assurance. Heaven, the best, much better than we can ever imagine, and Jesus who comes and takes us there prepares a room for us. I mean, hey, that must be a nice room, you know, and what do you want? I mean, yeah, couldn't, couldn't get any better than that. Then it says, hallowed be thy name. And hallowed means honored, adored, worshipped. And in biblical times, the name meant much more than it means today. Before the service, we talked about somebody called Müller, you know. Müller, okay, Centuries back used to be a miller, but today Müller, Müller, Meyer doesn't mean a thing. But in that time, the name designed what somebody, what somebody was. A name stood, wasn't just a designation, the name stood for the character of somebody, the character, the personality. If you say, I know his name, that means you didn't just know he was Müller, you knew how he was, who he was, what he did. And so when it says, hallowed be thy name, adored, worshipped be thy name, that just doesn't mean Jesus as a name. It means Jesus as a person, or God as a person. You know, worshipped, hallowed, as, uh, as he is, as he himself presents himself. God must be 
praised and glorified as it is expressed at the, be- at the beginning of Psalm 103 too. We have read that. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. You know, that's the reason for blessing. I mean, we, to remember his benefits, to remember all the stuff that he gave us, and uh, <coughs> be, be grateful, be grateful to that, and bless him for it. And then he goes, you know, who forgives all our trespasses, who heals all our iniquities. That is the reason why we, why we bless and adore and lord the Lord. And this is just an in-between, but sometimes we have trouble finding words, you know. Sometimes we have trouble finding words praising the Lord, for example, or thanking the Lord. And read the Psalms. Read stuff like Psalm 103 or 139 or 102, whatever. And read them and pray for the Psalms. You know, the, the same question is, uh, <coughs> so what? What does it mean for me? And if you read something like 103, it helps you to bless. Then he goes on and says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God or the kingship of God is where the will of God is done. We see God's will in many places in the Bible. The best known probably is the, the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, uh, God expresses, thank you very much, God expresses his will, what he wants us to do. And uh, you know the passages like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. These are the, these are the wills. And... Uh, a passage that I like very much, I found in, in Jeremiah, and there it says, the Lord exercises kindness and justice and righteousness. You know, we can just piously pray and ask the Lord to send all things. You know, be, be kind enough and let thy will be done and let thy kingdom come. You know, we can, yeah, we can just ask for it. The question is, you know, what does it mean for us? Do I have a role in that? Should I do something to make this happen? What do I contribute to the coming of his kingdom? What about my kindness? What about my justice? What about my righteousness? Where do I stand? If I pray for these things, you know, do I just sit here and expect them to come? Or do I do something with my life to, to make it come, to expedite it? You know, we cannot change the world, but we can influence our environment, I think. And the question is, am I kind? Am I just in my sphere of influence with my, I don't know, co-workers if I have any? Kindness, family, the same, you know. Do I lead a righteous life? A righteous life is the same as a godly life. And these are the thoughts we should contemplate as we pray this prayer, you know. The Lord exercises or the Lord loves kindness and justice and righteousness. These are basically three things that God wants. The first part of the Lord's prayer is directed towards God, you know what we said. Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And then the second part, 
goes towards, uh, towards us more and about our provisions, about our needs. And it goes on, it says, give us this day our daily bread. And this is a, a petition that the Lord will provide the basic, ordinary things that we need for a normal and simple life. What should we notice here? First of all, it says, give us today our daily bread. It doesn't say, give me today my daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. What, what does it imply for us? Uh, the meaning here is that we should not have too much where others have too little. We should share. We should look around and see who needs what and be able to give it to them. We must commit ourselves to the ser- to service of fellow men. And for this, you know, we don't have to go to Africa. We don't have to go to Syria. We probably can't, but you can look around in the neighborhood. In Switzerland, I read the other day, there are lots of people that are at what you call the poverty level, you know. If you look around, you see some old ladies that don't do all that well. So before we go all over the place, we can also look in our own thing. It says, give us today our daily bread. It's a petition for daily bread. It's not a petition for all the future needs that might ever come. It says, and you know it, it says, don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of his own. I don't think that means we don't never have to plan. We have to plan our things, that's clear. But, you know, it doesn't always go all the way in the future. And we ask God that every day he provides for us. It was like, if you remember the, the Exodus and the Jews in the, in, in the desert, you know, and every day the manna came. It didn't, they couldn't, weren't allowed to gather more than they needed for one day. And that, I think, is implied here too. And then it is a petition for bread. Give us today our daily bread. And I think that means bread, the simple thing. We don't ask for a new Mercedes. We ask for our daily bread, you know. We should be humble and simple in our demands. We pray for what we need in a normal daily life. Proverbs. If you haven't read Proverbs in a long time, go and do. It's so full of good stuff. Like in Proverbs 30, it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. You know, the the man there asks, give me neither poverty nor riches. Just let me live a normal life. If I have too much, I might say, I might disregard God, you know. And if I have not enough, I might get to the point where I steal. So give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me my daily bread. that also, this petition doesn't mean that we don't do anything. We can, I don't think we can just sit here and wait for the daily bread. It also means that we use the, the abilities that God has given us, our strength, our mind, uh, whatever we can. I mean, we have to go out and to work is a very biblical, uh, very biblical thing. We should do our thing 
and ask that God will provide also a job and the, the bread what we need for our everyday life. And then it says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Some Some translations use debts, others use sins, others use trespasses. What, clearly, what is clear with all these words is that we are sinners and that we need forgiveness. The fact, you know, that Jesus teaches this to all people, that's his prayer for the people, it makes it clear that all people need this, it makes it clear that all people are sinners. Sin originally meant to miss the mark. I think it comes from the, from the, you know, shooting with the bow and the arrow, and you shoot, and you miss, the, you don't hit, but you miss the mark, and that is considered sin. So, in the context of the Lord's Prayer, I would say, sin is the failure to mark the, the, to mark the goal that, uh, to, to hit the mark that God has set us. We it's a failure to do what God has asked us to do. A failure to miss the mark of obedience. The failure probably to, to lead a really truly good life. So we need, we are all sinners. Some of, you know, some people think, well, I'm, I'm leading a pretty good life, you know. No adultery, I don't steal, haven't killed anybody. I mean, all that's good and fine. But all of us, certainly don't live a life that is completely 100% to the, to the liking of God. In First John, we read the following. It says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So it is clear that we need forgiveness. But how do we get it? How do we get forgiveness from God? This is clearly stated, for example, in Matthew, we can read that. There it says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We receive forgiveness by forgiving those who are indebted to us in some way or another. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It says, as we forgive, in the same measure. You know, you can say in the same measure that we forgive, please forgive us. And if we don't forgive, we cannot expect that God will forgive us either. And this is a prayer when we pray that, you know, Forgive us our debts. We can't really pray this if we hold a lot of grudges or bitterness against other people in our hearts. The petition cannot be prayed just automatically and without thinking. We thoroughly must examine ourselves, you know, and see whom, whom do we have to forgive. Sometimes these things, you know, when you get 75, things go, go way back. And you have some, <laughs> some things that stay with you, and maybe you've got to clean them up. So, ask yourself, whom do I have to forgive? Go there and do it. And then we can ask our Father to forgive our sins. 
And the last of these petitions is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The first part of the petition speaks about temptation. James says, let no man when he is tempted say, I'm tempted by God. We cannot put the blame for our sins of God. God does not lead us into temptation which cannot be resisted. It's more of a testing. You know, God, might, God leads us to the test. Sample of this, probably the best or best known, is, is Job. You know, Job was, it was a test, and, and Job uh, certainly passed it. We might better say, let us not be led to a test which we cannot pass. It's just kind of like a, a pupil might go to his teacher and say, hey, don't make the test more difficult than I can pass it, you know. And this is our plea to God. Do not lead me to, uh, or let me get into a situation that I cannot handle. Temptation is an inescapable part of the human condition. I don't think anybody can say he has never been tempted. Temptation comes in many ways. The most uh, best-known formula is the one about money, sex, and power. No? All these things can tempt in one way or another. And temptation is not outside of the plan of God. It's inside. It's part of the plan of God for our lives. Temptation as a, as a test, no? And uh, even Jesus was tempted. That certainly was the will of God. And it, he was put to the test, you know, by the devil in the desert, 40 days. And uh, he had three propositions that he could have done. They all sounded very good and very nice. And Jesus said no. And so it is with us. You know, temptation's going to come. That's for sure. We know it, or we have known it, or we will know it. The question is, what do we do with it? And, uh, you know, when we say, deliver us from evil, that, that is an admission, really, that we cannot deal with our temptations completely all by ourselves. It means we need help. We need a power which is not our own. The second part of the petition, deliver us from evil, it is clear that only God really can deliver us from evil. Evil, the Satan, the devil, however you want to call it or define it, deliver us from evil means, first of all, there actually is evil. There is evil about there and we have to be aware of it. And man, we are all exposed to that danger. And man alone does not have the means necessary to fight all this. In, in Ephesians, you can read uh, the armor of God. It talks about the armor of God there, all the things that we have to, to fight. And it says there, we do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against spiritual hosts of wickedness. You know, I mean, things that attack us doesn't normally necessarily have to be our neighbors. But these are things that attack us, and we should fight them with the help of God. It takes the power of God to deliver us. In Hebrews 2.18, it says, Because he himself, Jesus, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus was there, okay? Jesus was tempted, just as we said before. And he knows what it's all about, and he is able to help us with that. question is, do we go there? Do we pray? Do we ask him? Do we ask for help? Do we open ourselves to that? That is the question. And, yeah, 
what to say in the end I would say Lord God Almighty Father in heaven we thank you that your son our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has given us this prayer let us always pray it reverently and thoughtfully in Jesus name we pray so when you pray it again think about it go through it slowly line by line and relate it to your own to your own life what does it mean what does it tell me? What should I do? Where am I okay? Where do I need more help? And God is our Father, Abba, we can go to him, just as children, in a naive way. You know, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit does not mean the, the dumb people or the not intelligent. Poor in, poor in spirit means the humble people. To be humble, to approach God, in, in that way. Amen.